Welcome to more to come. PW Comics World's weekly podcast of comics and graphic novel news recorded this week at the offices of Publishers Weekly in Manhattan, United States. I'm Heidi McDonald, the editor-in-chief of The Beat at ComicsBeat.com. And don't forget, you can find us on Twitter at, at PW Comics World. And I'm Kate Fitzsimmons. I'm the podcast producer. And you can find us online on Tumblr at PWComicsWorld.tumblr.com. I'm Meg Lemke. I'm the Comics and Graphic Novel Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. And you can check out all of our comics coverage at PublishersWeekly.com slash comics. You can also sign up there for the Fanatic Newsletter, which is the bi-weekly email blast of comics and pop culture. And don't forget, you can subscribe to More to Come on many fine podcasting platforms, and you can also rate us there. You can leave a comment of some sort and let us know how we're doing, because we love to hear from our listeners. And if there is a podcast platform you prefer that we're not on, you know, drop us a line and we'll go on there too. And this week on More to Come, Waterson Returns, MCU Foiled Coup, DC flashes the Super Bowl. Humanoids and Kickstarter grow as Catapult Mobile's magazine folds. Awards Corner and the briefs. And we'd like to welcome Meg Glemke to the podcast. Calvin is not available this week and Meg is stepping in uh, to fill his shoes. But Meg has been a part of Publishers Weekly and the comic scene for a long time. Welcome, Meg. Hello, it's very exciting uh, to be here in the room, the yeah. room where it happens. Beyond, of course, Meg, you've heard her on Stargazing many times if you listen to the podcast. So she's certainly no stranger to more to come. She is new to the room and, uh, you know, it's it's a whole new world. Yeah, uh, it's literally the first time we've seen each other. <laughs> I know, but I've been, I've been even speaking in my ear for years. It's very, it's actually really, it's really meeting your idols moment. <laughs> Oh, it's a world of wonders. And just to get it started, it's probably the craziest news that I've ever heard happen this week, and that Bill Watterson is returning to comics. So the creator of the much-beloved strip, Calvin and Hobbes, has been off the radar so much. There's literally a documentary about how Mm. off the radar he is. Yeah, I mean, he's kind of a legendary recluse. He was... um, you know, he quit doing Calvin Hobbes, what, 20 years ago, 20, 25 years ago, quite a while ago. And I uh, think 30 years 30 ago. 30 years ago. Yeah, forever ago. And uh since then, whatever happened to Bill Watterson has been a popular question. I mean, he's not completely out of touch. He does ca- talk to his his editors, um, his editor, Andrews McMeal. When Watterson won the Grand Prix at Angoulême a few mm-hmm. years ago, I mean, everybody was like, they've got to, inv- you know, uh, uh, vote him in so to see if he shows up. He did not show up, but he sent his editor to accept the award for him. And Andrews McMeal will be publishing this book. It is called The Mysteries, which is a great title. Uh, Watterson is writing it and artist John Cashed will be drawing it. And it's called A Fable for Grownups and it's coming out on October 10th. And, and the news, uh, probably not the way Andrews McMeal wanted it to get out. <laughs> I think they put up the catalog listing on their website. And of course, some sharp-eyed person saw well, it and then yeah. it went out as opposed to... You put it on your website, people are going to find out, dude. Well, it's also, I mean, I'm not sure Bill Watterson is, will do any press for the book because, I mean, he hasn't done 
Well, has it done any interviews? Have you followed this at all, Meg? Or are you up on the Watterson? I didn't, I didn't know that he was quite this reclusive, but I mean, I certainly love Calvin and Hobbes. I mean, I think that whether or not the man himself has been out in the comics sphere, his influence has been. And I, I think it's notable that, um, we are looking at a generation of cartoonists who were raised, um, with the existential joy of Calvin and Hobbes, right? Yeah. And I mean, Calvin and Hobbes, has been gone but bill waterson like to be fair he's not like locking himself in a box somewhere he's living it's a totally like normal Simmons. it's like yeah. Uh, yeah he's he's living a totally normal he's life in Ohio. He's just, yeah he's just like not communicating with the comics world that's all i think it's very interesting that he isn't drawing this it's and it's not i mean arguably is it a comic right it's a graphic narrative of to- of sorts it looks a lot to me like uh shantan or specifically oh, yes. What it really pulled for me was The Mysteries of Harris Burdick oh. by Chris Van Alsberg. Oh, if you all nice may one. know that work. I um, do not. It's a lovely 1984 picture book by Chris Van Alsberg, who's a beloved um, illustrator. Polar of Express. Yes, Polar Express. Thank you. And Jumanji. Um, but it's it's got this uh, mysterious found photos thing going. Oh, yeah. And... It's taught, you know, actually my daughter, who's in middle school now, was just assigned it again. You know, I was, oh. it's taught to sort of fill in the story, which is what, and uh, the picture book does. It allows you to kind of imagine the rest of the universe. And so that's what Watterson is bringing to us with this. Well, the, the description, the blurb, it says, in a fable for grownups by cartoonist Bill Watterson, a long ago kingdom is afflicted with unexplainable calamities, hoping to end the torment. The king dispatches his knights to discover the source of the mysterious events. Years later, a single battered knight returns. You know, this might be the horse, the boy, and his... What's the I name was going to say, like, the adult picture book thing is real hot yeah. right now. What's the name it's of never that gone book? Away. I can never get it right. Um, we can look it up on the computer. I know. The horse, <laughs> the dog. But, you know, it's like Jonathan Living Seagull and the <laughs> Little Prince. You well, know, like, these are all... It's not It's not a new idea to have a picture book for grown-ups, but well, this is beautifully done. I do wonder if this is going to be a take on Iron John, given mm. that beginning. With the whole, like, you send a bunch of knights out and only one comes back. Mm. Yeah, that... Uh, you know, it sounds intriguing and it definitely looks... I mean, Cash is a very... Um, uh, experienced and well-known illustrator. You know, he certainly is really, really talented. And these, just the few looks that we have look pr- pretty intriguing. And, uh, just, I, I am looking at his Wikipedia page, but, um, Watterson rarely gives interviews and make public appearances. His link his interview include the cover story in the Comics Journal in 1989, an interview that appeared in 1987 issue of Honk Magazine. And one in a 2015 Watterson exhibition catalog. So, you know, maybe Andrews McMill didn't have a publicity tour planned for this book. <laughs> maybe, and knowing Andrews McMill, they're not that big on PR anyway. So maybe it just, you know, maybe this is the best kind of rollout for it. But Well, I mean, it might have been great if they had, I don't know, had a press release being like, hey, everybody, a new work from Bill Watterson. But no, no, that. That did not happen. Yeah. So, well, we all found out anyway, and uh, I think we're pretty excited about it. So, October 10th, 2023. Set your calendars. Holiday gifting. Yeah. It's the horse, the boy, and his Calvin. That's what it is. <laughs> that book is taken off. That's supposed to be one of the best-selling books of the last five years, so. I know, and they they didn't uh, submit it as a comic, you know, to PW. Oh, I know. I don't know but why. But it's, it's considered a graphic novel. That's how it's BISAC is I, handling it. Whatever. Uh, the book that none of us can remember the name of. I love it. Or I can't, anyway. Um, 
All right. So uh, we've been talking a lot about DC and James Gunn and all that stuff here on the podcast of late. But um, this week it was the MCU's turn to kind of get some skullduggery out there. So so I think we've been talking – I think we mentioned on the podcast before that there was a – Do you I, mean the boy, the mole, the fox, and the horse? Yes. The boy, the mole, the fox, and the horse? Yes, because you're mixing it up with C.S. Lewis, the horse, the horse was, and his boy. I know, but there's a boy and a horse in the title. It's quite lovely looking, And honestly. there's a mole. <laughs> People are clearly giving it as a gift. Yes. 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 That is what is happening. Yes. All year. And what's the name of the author? We should give him props, too. Is it, is it British Shettleman? The, uh, his handwriting on the cover was hard to read. Uh, Charlie Maxey. Charlie Maxey, that's it, yes. Uh, best-selling graphic novel for the- adults of the past five years, for sure. Uh, but anyway, so the MCU, uh, <laughs> there's been a bit of a, there was a coup attempt on the Disney board led by Ike Perlmutter, former publisher of uh, Marvel Comics, and he had this guy that he was trying to uh, land on the on the board, and Bob Iger, who was the returning chairman of Disney, was just not having it, and neither was the board, because they kept saying, well, you know, he doesn't know anything about media, and uh, his name was Nelson Peltz, fittingly enough. So last week, Bob Iger did his first earnings call of uh, his returned era, and he not only, I mean, the call, Disney had lost some stuff, uh, some had some, you know, streaming isn't that lucrative, but it was up in some other ways, you know, it was mixed. And he did announce that there was going to be layoffs, about 7,000 people, and $5 billion in cuts, and uh, it seemed to be enough for Pelts to go away. And then the next morning, though, Iger, it's well known that Bob Iger and, and Ike Perlmutter never got along. And, and, uh, Iger went on MSNBC and did a, or a CNBC, pardon me, did an interview when he said, yeah, uh, somebody asked him, like, you know, well, do you think Ike Perlmutter will be satisfied with this? And he said, um, well, I, I, that's for Ike to say, but you know, we, we always had some, some, uh, you know, discussions. And at one point he wanted me to fire Kevin Feige, but, I thought that would have been a mistake. So I didn't do it. And, <laughs> which is like, yeah, that would have uh, cost you $23 billion. So I think that was his way of kind of burying Ike uh, as a decision maker for a long time to come. Yeah, and and I think we need a little bit of background on Perlmutter and what this has to do with Marvel. And that is Perlmutter used to own Marvel and he was – um, famously penny wise and pound foolish. We never, ever, ever got review copies, not even digital ones from him. It well, was we, sad. Well, we still don't, right? Oh, Meg's just smiling. She wouldn't even say anything. I'm not gonna. She can. She has no comment. No, no comment. comment. No comment. <laughs> well, he's still in charge of the Marvel division no to some degree at. Yeah. Disney Marvel. Well, let's just say it's very well known, even if it isn't. I don't know what Publishers Weekly situation is, but, uh, you know, at EW Law, I, the, the number one, well, it used to be the number one magazine. Uh, they never sent them. Like, they would be like, oh, we want to do a major feature on Marvel. They wouldn't send any review copies. I mean, my email's on the mass chat if anyone wants to get in touch with yeah, their yeah. books. That's mlemke at publishersweekly.com. Um, but yeah, Ike is legendarily cheap. You know, I talked to somebody. I promised I wouldn't write this because he thought it would out him. But I often say things on the podcast that I don't put in print on the beat. 
and I was talking to somebody who had had business dealings with Marvel and with Ike. And, you know, he said Ike is a good businessman. And he said, you know, we've talked about paperclips. And this was a reference to a very famous story about how someone was talking to Ike at the office. And Ike looked at the rice paper basket, saw someone throwing out a paperclip. And he reached down and pulled it out and said, you know, I have to pay for these. I put it on the table. <laughs> so anyway, it's it's kind of understandable why Iger and uh, Ike didn't get along because uh, Ike thought that Kevin Feige was spending too much money on the MCU and um, most moviegoers thought he was spending just the right amount of money. Well, and it wasn't just that. There's a certain amount of difference in perspective. Uh, Perlmutter is infamously on the record as objecting to too many female characters being mm. in the movies. Um, and also of wanting to, you know, play hardball and fire major MCU actors if they wanted more money after being in several movies. And it took um, Robert Downey Jr. famously standing up to him and saying, like, mm -hmm. That's right. if, if you fire the rest of them, I walk too, and you'll just have to redo the whole thing. Um, so that probably would not have worked out as well for Marvel. Yeah, it, that's demonstrative. Yes. And the typical. And uh, there's no question but that there are, 21, 23 movies up until Avengers Endgame was a pretty amazing feat. Uh, but however, this week, we've been talking, we, we, every once in a while we bring this up on the podcast. Is there superhero fatigue? Is Marvel over? And this week, for the first time, the answer was, you know what? We're tapping the brakes. Uh, this comes as, uh, as you're listening to this, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania has opened, which is the first MCU film of 23. Now, I went and saw it on Monday uh, with one of my beat staffers, Tamar Dar, and uh, we both, neither of us was looking, like, neither of us was excited to see Quantumania. And as I wrote, uh, it turned from a, a, you know, a treat to a task. It's like, oh, I got to go to this screening. I mean, you know, a lot of my entertainment writers didn't even go to their screenings because they really didn't give a crap about Quantumania, but I, yeah, I feel it's my duty to go to a free IMAX reading, so that was mine. But it, I, I gotta be honest, it's just not a very good movie. It's really, like, I mean, it's probably the worst movie since Thor 2. And it might be worse than Thor 2. I, um, I literally, my late roommate loved Thor 1 and was so angry about Thor 2 that she swore off all Marvel movies from then on. Well, that's a little radical, but... Well, I mean, she's the extreme end, but still, I mean, I will say that after a few mediocre plots, I'll just put it that way, um, the movie equivalent of those comics covers that have 27 different characters on them and you're <laughs> not sure what's happening, um, I, a person who's not the most critical movie viewer, a person who thought Jupiter Ascending was one of the best movies <laughs> ever. Uh, I was quirky. It is. It was exactly the right kind of quirky, but I am aware that it was a flop. But I, it's a beloved flop. Anyway, uh, I'm easy to please, but I just haven't been able to get all that excited about a lot of Marvel movies in the last three or four well, years. Well, Phase 4 was very problematic, and, you know, it ranged for our field as with Eternals. 
and had some crowd pleasers. I, I think Multiverse of Madness was a big crowd pleaser. Obviously, No Way Home was as well. But, um, you know, there were some movies like Thor Love and Thunder, which I, I tried to love. but I actually liked that one. You but it was an eccentric weird one. Okay. All right. It was, I mean, it was what you might call a flawed gem. Hmm. All right. It was, as, as a part of the MCU as a narrative whole, it was completely useless. As a popcorn movie, if you pay no attention to any context, it was fun. Yeah. Well, you're in the minority on that because a lot of people think it was really bad. And, uh, anyway. <laughs> This week, Kevin Feige sat down in a big, long interview with Entertainment Weekly. Now, he does a big interview once every two or three years. So this was his, like, hey, let's introduce Space Rock. I don't think I've ever seen a single MCU oh, movie okay. in my life. I was trying to figure that out. I don't think I should say that on the podcast. Actually, I can. I could say that because I have very talented reviewers who understand yes. the superhero universe. But I've seen yeah. Batman. I've seen DC movies, Okay, well, but. we'll get to that next. All right. That's going in the pod. Sorry. <laughs> yes. But listen, he, 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 I'm not going to go into all the details. We have, I'm, I'm sort of, we're sort of treading water here with all this, but the real bottom line is MCU tapping the brakes. They had five shows when they did their big tall H reveal last year. They had five TV shows for Disney plus coming out this year. Uh, looks like only two are going to come out. Uh, Secret Invasion and Loki season two. Ironheart is kind of on hold. Echo is on hold. The Daredevil TV show. Everything is being slowed down. And Kevin Feige himself just admits there's been so much material coming out. We need to make it more special. Now, this is part of the whole streaming slowdown that we're seeing. Uh, but yes, the MCU is mortal. Yeah. Mm. But to be fair, it's not quite just about the MCU. Part of that is about Disney Plus. Yes. So there have been discussions by industry watchers and from people at Disney to the press about you know whether they should have more more versions of their major properties. Or whether they should have fewer and make them special and then just put other stuff on there too. And so I think this is part of that larger thing, not just about the MCU. I totally agree. But I mean, I do think it's just acknowledging the reality that he even, as I mentioned in this interview, he keeps saying, you know, it's 23 years at Marvel. You know, Marvel's 80 years old. And, you know, I've been doing this half my life. And hey, did you see that SNL sketch about how there's too many shows on cable? I mean, it's really hard not to draw a line between, between all of this. It's like, you know, you get a little world weary with it. And like, there have been 31 MCU movies. There's 30, such a thing as diminishing returns. One, yes. And, you know, Rob Salkowitz has a story. Just to switch quickly to the print version, he has a story on ICV2 this week called, is, have superhero comics stagnated? Superhero mm. comics in a creative rut. Who, if anyone will find the rescue? And there's no question, but that manga and webtoons have really become the most vital part of the comics industry right now. And listen, the superhero is not going to go away. It's been around for 80 years. It is here to stay. And these characters have endured a lot of ups and downs and a lot of changes. And they really speak to something very important. So we're going to have Spider-Man and we're going to have Batman. But, you know, everything 
slows down. Well, I mean, I think also some of it is just, I feel like COVID really like slammed the brakes on new floppies yes. for, mm. you know, new monthly titles for, uh, superhero comics. And I just don't think even as sales have gone up of the collected editions that the weekly comics have quite caught up. And I mean, I'm as much of a culprit as anybody else. Uh, I, as a comics reader, have not gotten back into the habit of hitting the comic store once a month. Look, I would interject too, and I think that there's some going on a limb here, but I, as we've seen middle grade and young adult comics boom, the diversity and the more non-superhero storytelling universe has expanded so significantly that folks who were drawn to the medium, and I'm talking about children, the drawing of children into the medium over 15 years has been not only coming in through superheroes and Archie, you know, like, and Bill Watterson and, mm-hmm. you know, like more traditional, right, types of storytelling and comics. So there is a way in which I think we're seeing other properties become more, you know, more appealing to the attention spans of folks who grew up reading Smile and folks who grew up reading uh, Dave Pilkey. You know, I do think yeah. there's something to that because people who are very attached to superheroes, and I'm not calling them that they're nostalgic only, but they're attached to what they read growing up. Well, I mean, this is actually, this is not just the children's ones, and it's it happened the before. New, the, I, I know. Yeah. But I'm saying that that even before that generation came mm. of age, the phenomenon of the graphic novel industry and the comics world as a whole turning a lot of attention away, even people who also wrote and drew superheroes, turning attention away from those right. toward properties they created themselves, toward their own original ideas, you know, your sagas, your walking deads. Like, it's successive generations who yeah. are open to other modes told in the comics medium. And I think that's where we're seeing the growth, right? Um, that's my take on it. You well, know, and I think, though I will say my four-year-old is suddenly very interested in Spidey and Friends, which I'm like, I, I have <laughs> children like superheroes, okay? Right. Like, but the stories have to be aimed at them or, you know, appropriate for them. Right. The Spidey and Friends thing. That, you know, and then he's like trying to do the moves and he's pushing his sister. I'm like, oh, comics code. Let's bring it in here. Well, you got a boy and a girl, so you got a perfect Yeah. Well, I mean, focus group. that's definitely maybe a dynamic, but I have to say, I think it's, it's not. Just no, it's that. not gendered. I don't, I don't believe that. I think he's just got, he's no, very I, active. I wasn't. Sorry, sorry. Talking about that. That's okay. <laughs> but, um, what I meant is just that we've seen lulls like this mm-hmm. in superhero comics before. And some of it's the COVID and some of it's the booms in other kinds of comics. But, you know, honestly, some of it is the, boom bust of superhero comics where if there's not someone with a vision uh comic companies tend to founder for a while and there are dark ages you know there are whole decades of major publishers that everyone kind of goes oh 70s dc huh? <laughs> really man well oh my god so I think the DC stuff coming up in the spring is actually quite interesting. No, no, like Zdarsky, and I'm just interjecting that. I think that's actually very interesting, the new stuff that DC is doing. Right. I, I mean, I think, listen, 
So just to segue, um, I, as I sat there watching Quantumania, I thought to myself, this is tired. I want to see a new look and I want to see something new. And guess what? DC is the DCU is looming with this Gunniverse that we've been talking about. Now, if it's ever going to happen, we don't know. And probably the Marvel movie I'm most looking forward to in 23 is Guardians of the Galaxy 3 by James Gunn. So, uh, oh, also into the Spider-Verse too. I mean, that's a freaking masterpiece. But, um, you know, I think audiences are really ready for something that has a different tone and a different look. So, and, and one more thing, which seems the sameness, is that the MCU's tone, unfortunately, is reflecting back, I think, and hitting Marvel Comics. Mm, yes. And it means that a lot of that variety and tone is not there. So the comics feel samey. Mm. And so, you know, not surprised. Well, uh, you know, I think if they are ready for a change, uh, I think that was shown during the Super Bowl, right, Kate? So, the Flash movie has been troubled. Deeply troubled. Uh, mainly due to its troubled star, Ezra Miller. But finally, finally, DC was, was ready to unveil. <laughs> and they, uh, Bought a Super Bowl spot for the Flash movie trailer, and yes, it's a multiverse extravaganza as expected. It, it is kind of their version of No Way Home because we saw not only Ben Affleck Batman, but da 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 da, da. Keaton. <laughs> and which is very funny because there had been so many rumors about this movie like scoopers are just all over this movie they're like oh you know james gunn is changing everything he's taking out michael keaton it's going to end up on the cutting room floor and you know james gunn has been debunking many rumors on his twitter account but he did not address those rumors because i was thinking to myself he is not stupid he is not going to cut out michael keaton if he leaves one thing in it's going to be michael keaton whatever amount of reshoots or recasting you need to do to keep that in well but but actually it's kind of genius because marvel has worked so hard to foil spoilers what better way is there to foil spoilers than to just not contradict the bad ones mm -hmm. yeah so listen uh, i'm confident that they will using the this multiversal idea find a way to you know kick ezra miller and their crime spree ass out of this <laughs> uh but you know they got a, mo a movie to sell so right. but it got people excited i mean i have to be honest ezra miller or no people were talking about that trailer i think it got people excited right and what's interesting and part of why we're bringing it in here is that unlike the marvel movies it leaned heavily on the comics there was a comic yes, store ad at mm -hmm. the end yeah. of the super bowl spot so Let's repeat, a comics ad in a Super Bowl spot. Yeah. DC's and, putting their money where their mouth is. Yeah, and also, I mean, there's a line in there where he says, I've got to find my mother, or I just want to be with my mother, and I, which is right out of Flashpoint. You know, the miniseries by Jeff Johns, and uh, so obviously this is very comics. Now, and also, we now have um, concrete proof that the announcement of this new DCU slate is selling tons of DC comics. 
Um, there's this comics tracker kind of website that does aftermarket sales. They said all 10 uh, copies were, uh, all, all, all their top 10 were DC comics, which never happens. And I have been trying to get some numbers from BookScan and, you know, proving just how many were sold. And I am told that uh, they soared, the back, the back issue soared by a significant number, which I'm trying to find in my secret DMs. Boy, if this ever got out, you know, if my screenshot folder ever got hacked, I would be finished. I'd have to change my name. Um, <laughs> but uh, also, James Gunn is like the new marketer for DC Comics. He is such a big fan. He is like tweeting, oh, new Swamp Thing annual. Isn't this great art? I mean, he's really a big, better godsend. And I am told that because of this, the morale within the halls of DC is uh, really soaring. And um, here we go. Yeah, sold four times more co- copies of all those books uh on yeah. book scan after the announcement. So, and yeah. and remember, we will say we've said it before. We'll say it again. Um, it cannot be emphasized enough how much of a benefit it is for a comic book movie to specifically select a specific comic that is in some way linked to it and let readers know which one it is. Hmm. And he did that for every single one of those titles. And I think that's why it's reflected in the sales, because people know actually know which one to buy. Instead of like 27 people writing explainers about, like, <laughs> well, you could catch up on this continuity, but you could catch up on that continuity, but you could catch up on this one. See you at the bookstore. Yeah, it's definitely, if there was ever causality, uh, this proved it. So anyway, a lot of doings at the MCU and the DCU. And um, more to come on that, as we like to say. Uh, so we've been talking, there's been a lot of bad news in the comics industry, a lot of downsizing, a lot of stuff going on. But a couple of companies were announcing good news this week. One of them was Humanoids, uh, which is a French publisher. Right, Meg? No, Meg used to work. I just want to say, Meg, you, you have a en français connection, correct? That's true. For several years, I um, was a program development person, I mean, my title is sort of fuzzy, in the U.S. for the French Comics Association, which was a consortium of French publishers who were looking to increase visibility and translation sales, essentially. It was a lovely gig. Heidi and I did a lot of partnerships through it because really it was my whole job was to bring, you know, French and Belgian and also other European nationalities who's published in French, the comic scene, um, authors to the U.S. to major conferences and put together events. We did a whole, I could talk about this for a while. We'll curtail it. I don't know the deep politics of all the different French publishers, but I can briefly say there's a lot of them, right? <laughs> Just like in the U.S. Um, but Humorous is really an outsider and I think in a lot of ways, uh, from a lot of the more traditional Bandestine publishers. Um, and they've gone through a lot of ups and downs that you you've talked about, but now they're bringing on uh, they're bringing on two people and they're promoting someone. So I'm going to read it. Holly Aitchison has joined, has joined the publisher as their new director of sales. Esther Kim is coming on board as new director of marketing, and they've also promoted Amanda Lucido to director of U.S. publishing operations. Three women which I think is fantastic. And Esther has worked quite a bit with PW. She's was at Boom. Um, well, she ran uh, Phantom Comics, the really mm-hmm. great comic shop also before that. But yeah, Esther, 
I mean, she was at Boom, and the fact that Humanoids has lured her away is very interesting to me. Yeah, I think it's um, a show of strength, essentially, and I think that they'll both, all three of these women will bring uh, a lot of power and perspectives and and context. And uh, word on the street that Heidi hears is that there might be more moves from Humanoids. Hmm. So, you know, after so many publishers have had so many travails in the last few months, um, it's interesting. But like you say, the the U.S. Humanoids is an arm of a pretty solid French company, correct? I think that the idea is that they they have a strong U.S. presence for a French company and they do a lot of original work, um, including original work in English, which is unusual. Okay. For a French company that typically will publish originally in the French language. Right. Well, it's certainly g- good to see, uh, these, uh, great folks, you know, employed and part of the community. Um, the other good news was Kickstarter. You know, Kickstarter is very transparent about their numbers and, you know, you can go on there. They have a live total that you can f- fiddle with and see, you know, which is done the most. But, uh, comics continue to have, um, the highest success rate on Kickstarter uh, does not the most money, uh, not the category of the most money. It's, it's this category itself is a lot smaller, just in dollars. However, uh, they have more uh, more projects. Let's see, yeah, they have a sixty four point eight four percent success rate. Would the average Kickstarter campaign is forty point three five percent? So that's a pretty huge. Um, Rise above average. Uh, an interesting dance and theater are the next two biggest. Uh, oh, and they had their biggest year ever in 22, uh, with 2,805 projects launched and 2,205 of them were successful. Uh, 100 project increase over 2021. So that's great. And, uh, Oriana Leckard, who spun the comics lead there for a while, is actually moving on to become the publishing lead because she was both. She was right. comics and publishing, right. which was a combined role. And I think she doesn't, I mean, she doesn't come out of comics. She comes out of general publishing. An, an actual publishing on Kickstarter is getting bigger and bigger, right. isn't it? I think that we were talking about this, that it's really, it's cyclical too, because they did have an independent comics lead in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, they've had multiple independent comics leads. The very first one was Jamie Tanner years ago. And then, Oriana has been there for this period of growth. And so this is great. Like she's getting to focus now on publishing. She's clearly excited and enthusiastic. She's in Tokyo right now tweeting up a storm about, um, being introduced to like manga culture and publishers there. But she's, she's getting to bring on a co-director essentially, or I don't know exactly what the leveling there is, right? But she's, they're bringing on someone to focus on comics yeah. or bringing back someone because it had been two roles in the past. Right. So Margot right. Atwell, who went on to be the publisher of um, the Feminist Press, which is really an interesting move, lateral move, um, was the publishing lead when there was a, also a comics lead. Yeah. So uh, I guess that's what we're trying to say is like Oriad is moving. So there is a job opening at Kickstarter. And based on the last time there was an opening, my email is soon, probably all of us is going to still be filled with, do you know anyone at Kickstarter? How do I get this job? Uh, I do not. Uh, you just got to go through portals. Um, yeah. I, uh, and, but we are bringing it up cyclical though it is and unfilled though this position may be just as a sign of hope. Yeah, it's exciting. Even their, they have a new CEO and he was tweeting about how supportive the comics community is. I've always thought that something that's really interesting about Kickstarter and comics is that they're very aligned, right? The idea of community support, the idea of 
self and mini press publishing is so deeply aligned and uh, accepted in the ethos of the comics community in a way that in literary publishing there may be still some mm-hmm. side eye around it, right? But it's really on team comics to create your own projects and publish yeah. them. So to get supported for that and to have a platform to do that it really aligns well with the community standards. Yeah. So I think that's how, how come they've always had excitement and growth in that area, yeah. even with all the ups and downs about the politics of the company. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in in traditional publishing, starting out self-published is not necessarily a badge of honor. In comics, it is de rigueur. Right, if you exactly. didn't start out self-publishing, everyone wonders why not and what kind of industry plant you are. Yeah. And I, I just would like to throw in there, that we didn't exactly have this on our story list, but uh, it st- struck me that, you know, Boom had the number one all-time comics Kickstarter with Berserker, the Keanu mm-hmm. Reeves-led book. But this week, they surpassed that with The Expanse, Dragon Tooth, which is a you know, another media tie-in, and it's kind of like a continuation of the very popular um, show. I believe it was on Amazon. I never watched The Expanse, but I know people loved it. Well, it's uh, based on a very popular book series. Yes. So they are doing, uh, yeah, they, they broke the launch of Berserker in their first uh, couple days. So obviously, a lot of life in that kickstarter platform yeah. also you know entire publishers are launching their whole lists there i mean birdcage yeah. bottom books is a, a just launched their yeah. their next season and uh, i mean i absolutely love that i think it's, it's bringing the kind of you know distro table of mocha uh-huh. up to this global platform and a publisher like birdcage bottom which is really just trucking along scrappy amazing thoughtful publishment you know is able to do that yeah. and have a fulfillment platform and an ordering platform but it's 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 not you know it's every size publisher because the number two campaign uh last year was i just want to make sure i get this right uh it was ava's demon book two aftermath mm-hmm. and I, now i don't know if that was the collection from that's Skybound. That's Skybound. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. and that I mean, I mean Image is already sort of has right. that creator yeah. owned, but that's uh, that Skybound. Netted six hundred forty eight thousand dollars, so not bad. Uh, the number one book, by the way, is How to Think When You Draw, book five, uh, hmm. plus a reprint of Solar Books, which made nine hundred forty five thousand dollars. So pretty good, not bad. Uh, whoever you are. Um. So all right, now that was the good news. So we have some bad news here. Mm. Uh, a uh, Meg, a, uh, an outlet for comics has... So Catapult, uh, which is a multi-platform publisher that has a book publishing arm and then also had a really vibrant online magazine and courses, like they had linked courses where a, they're really a literary magazine, um, culture magazine comparable to The Believer or The Rumpus or McSweeney's and they had a small but active comic section that was publishing really diverse new voices. So the the big news in general that I'm publishing the last couple of days is that Catapult Magazine is folding uh-huh. and folding suddenly in that most of the instructors and apparently some staff weren't aware of the magazine folding until it was broke on Twitter because people like had to cancel the classes for the next day. It's really sad. Wow. And so there's been a lot of chatter about it and it's, you know, most of the chatter is coming from more, you know, poets and essayists. But I think that, it's very unfortunate for comics. I mean, the kinds of beautiful graphic narratives that we see collected in Best American Comics or that become a graphic novel picked up by Pantheon as a new promising person. You know, the 
the mouses of tomorrow were being published in short form on this. They had, um, Leanna Fink, Wendy Zhu, you know, beautiful pieces, oh, wow. um, that, that had a place there and they have, there's other places doing that kind of work, but I, they integrated into a larger conversation, larger literary world conversation. And it's, it's really tragic that that platform is gone. It's, I, I really hope that, um, the creators will be able to find new venues <clears throat> for this work and that they will be able to hopefully get their rights act to republish somewhere else that's active. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there are other believers been sort of up and down. I just, I think that there's been an interest in including comics and other yes. literary magazines. But as you, as people start developing those relationships and then have the rug pulled out, it's just a bummer, yeah. you know? Um, so hopefully, like in Nautilus and narratively or other examples, this is, this is that's the role that Catapult well, played. Well, you know, uh, I have some cartoonist friends who have like short stories mm-hmm. and they keep asking me, where do you think I should publish this? Because it's not for fantagraphics because they do have an anthology, but it is very, very, uh, I, mean, I just got to say it's very fantagraphics. Yes, it's the only well, way me, me, yeah. to describe it. And then, you know, the nib really does a certain kind of nonfiction mm-hmm. comic. It is not for a lot of narratives. And um, it's a very limited market out there to do this kind of short exactly. fiction. And, and not even get paid for it, just to find a platform for it. Yeah, I mean, I think Catapult was full of people who didn't get paid for their writing. That's really the... <laughs> but I think that what I'm trying to get at is that it's part of this other conversation. It's for the crossover readers. Right. The readers finding these comics are the ones who are going to read an essay about, you know... David Foster Wallace from one of his former students that is like recalled a memory and like it's a totally particular it makes sense market. I've never heard of it <laughs> and then they're finding a comic and they're getting excited and some of them are finding a comic for the first right, time right it was and a, then it they're was expanding the market it's expanding the market and not and the platform for these particular creators so it's it's hurting my heart a little bit plus you know the rest of the people who worked for it it's, it's a bummer um, they also did publish they didn't do probably publish graphic novels on their book arms. They published uh, like Flying Couch. Do you remember Amy Kurtzweil's graphic oh, yeah. novel? Black Balloon? Oh, okay. So part of the kind of the whole concept of Catapult, right, is that some of the writers who would grow up on the magazine would find a book publishing right home. So that synchronicity also had a role. So Kurtzweil's also published her comics in short form in the magazine, and that is also something that at least for now is stopping. So it's just it's, it's bad news. Well. There's good news and there's bad news. So that's definitely bad news. But we're going back to good news. <laughs> uh, there's some more awards have been coming out. So let's see. What do we have here? So uh, the ALA, GNCRT, the Graphic, graphic Novels and Comics Roundtable, round <laughs> uh, announced their best graphic novels for adults list. This, and, and kids. Oh, and it looks like they just put up their kids list, too. <laughs> Um, absolutely. And I think that that's part of what's exciting about GNCRT, right, is that often actually in a library, the same librarian will acquire comics for adult and kids, depending on the library's structure. Um, and just to not bury the lead, you know, obviously getting on a list that libraries are going to buy that's a national organization is a huge thing for a graphic novel because we're talking about uh, a non-returnable sale to a network potentially of libraries in a large city. Um, it's a big deal. It is. It creates and, a lot of readers. And the adult list is one that they really, really 
uh, centered because there was no graphic novel uh, reading list for that. But I just want to point out, I don't think they did the kids list before, right? Isn't it, this the first time they've done it? I don't know. I'm sorry. You have to fact check that okay. for me. I, you know, I stand corrected. They did put out the best graphic novels for children last year because okay. I know that they wanted to get the adults done first because there were no graphic novel reading lists for adults, but there are quite a few for kids. Exactly. So, for Yalsa does it. So, right. Yeah. Uh, so great. And, uh, so that's really great for our embattled librarians to be getting some really great resources. Uh, and then, uh, one more is the Penn Award, a nominated a graphic novel, uh, finalist for the first, or uh, on the long list. I don't think it's a finalist. It's a finalist. Oh, so, is it? Oh, okay. Yeah. So, um, Penn is a major, Penn America is a major literary foundation, um, founded by Salman Rushdie, actually, of interest, oh. especially given all of the return of him to the news recently. And, they announced the 2023 Literary Award finalists, and in the top monetary award, um, the Penn Gene Steinbook Award, is included um, Nick Dernasso for Acting Class, which is run in quarterly. And, you know, again, this kind of harkens back to my thing about Catapult. This is a literary award list, almost entirely prose works, and a graphic novel is on yeah. there, too. So and it's this embracing of the form. And it's it kind of notable that... Nick Dronasso has proven to be the thin edge of the wedge mm. on uh, of quite a few of these lists. I mean, he he was first nominated for the Man Booker Award in England for Sabrina, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was which, the first graphic novel ever for the Booker, right? Which was a big deal in the UK. And uh, since then, he's been on quite a few best of lists and awards. And I think and, everyone read him after the Booker, and then now <laughs> yeah. they. I mean, I think the people who put together these lists, started reading yeah. him after the booker, yeah. and we're excited he has a new book coming out. I didn't listen, I'll be completely honest, he's not my favorite cartoonist, I certainly like his books, he's not my favorite, but you know what, uh, a lot of people really like his work, you know, it's very good, I'm not saying he's not a good cartoonist, uh, and I think it's awesome that people have decided he's an author who's worth following, and reading, and discovering more about, so, you I think know. he's really innovative, I think he's got, Sabrina's a hard read, but it engrossing read yeah um i actually really loved sabrina but i think you know i think he's certainly captured the attention of a certain set of readers who tend to read the to judge these awards which i do think is a circle of um, people who are tied into this literary community and i i love that this is not only you know awarding nasa but again it opens up doors people are going to now turn to a similar work and not feel like it's outside of their comfort area Mm -hmm. I believe it was American Born Chinese, which was the first book to be longlisted for the American Book Awards. Mm-hmm. And now there's almost, you know, it's commonplace for there to be a book mm-hmm. on one of those lists. So it's groundbreaking. Right. These doors, the, the ground is broken. The doors also seventy five k, not bad. If yeah. you know, if he takes it home, yeah, yeah, not bad. All right, I think that leads us to we haven't had them in a while because there's been so much news. But finally, the briefs. Finally, finally, we have. A just slow enough news week. And by slow enough, I mean we're like 50 minutes in. Um, <laughs> that we actually have room for some briefer news. So, turning back to Japan, as we frequently do in the briefs, and on the eternal subject of AI art mm. that, you know, taking over our headlines for a little bit, a major... AI-drawn manga is going to be coming out from a manga creator and the Japanese publisher. Um, Uh Uh-oh. Yes. Yes. So uh, the mangaka Rootport is 
publishing through the uh, Japanese indie manga publisher Bunch Comics, working with Shinchosa to make an AI comic. Um, what's the translated title? Okay. And it's going to be based on Momotaro. Um, and Mid Journey is going to be involved in some way, shape, or form. But uh, the title has not been released yet. They promise that they are going to give behind-the-scenes information um, on how the AI did it, um, making sure to clear up any questions about, you know, art theft or anything like that. I think they want to reassure the audiences. It looks like kind of a cyberpunk take. Well, it's funny. It's funny because there's a story on comicbook.com uh, with their anime site that says it looks like cyberpunk. And it just seems like, and just throwing in there, I know this is the brief, so we don't normally talk, but on the beat, we did have a big survey of AI comics written by a writer uh, who didn't put their name on the story because they were afraid of hmm. blowback because mm-hmm. there's so much controversy. But uh, it was a very fair article, just a survey. And all the art always looks like cyberpunk. <laughs> Everybody is always like, oh, that looks like cyberpunk. There's just, well, the AI is drawing it from inside their world yeah, where they live, right? you guys. The AI is in the it's world. That's what it looks like. And well, they're like drawing what's around them. Well, yeah. And, and, <laughs> and, hello. and, and also everybody who think, who's writing a very early AI drawn comic is going to be like, Hey, <laughs> let's be self-referential. Ghost in the machine. It's tell what you know. This is like a basic of storytelling. And the guy is like, oh, I got turned on yeah. looking around. <laughs> yeah, you, I, you nailed it. I think you're right. So. Yep. Um, Sorry, I'm being the AI over here. <laughs> in uh, more traditional manga news, there is going to be some more deep cuts of Osama Tezuka uh, books being uh, translated into English, in this case from Ablaze Publishing. And um, so these include 100 Tales, Shakespeare Manga Theater, Tomorrow the Birds, and Neo Faust. He drew an awful lot of comics. He did. And so that's why, even though uh, Tezuka has not been with us for some time, uh, we are still still trying to catch up to his backlog <laughs> Uh, one of these days, one of these days, it'll all be in English. Uh, today is not that day, but we're getting closer. Yeah. Uh, and also, um, uh, Pluto by Naoki Urasawa, which is a inspired uh, by, inspired by Astro Boy. Uh, that's one of my favorite animes. And, uh, it is, there's, they've been talking about an adaptation of an of my anime, uh, excuse me, it's one of my favorite manga. And they've been talking about an anime adaptation for a long time. And then Netflix just re- released the trailer for it. So it is coming to Netflix sometime mm. this year. And I am super duper excited about that because, um, I don't think there's been, has there been any Urwasawa based anime on yet? Like he's one of my favorite cartoonists. Now he's one of my favorite cartoonists. So, well, I mean, I, I think, um, Pluto is a good choice yes. because Urwasawa can get extremely gritty and Pluto is less so. It is, but it's also got so much great mystery and oh, but, drama. But it, yeah. it's, it's great. What I'm saying is that it has the great side of Urasawa, but a little more fan friendly. Yes. And in fact, when I tell people 
how to get into Urasawa, I always tell them to read Pluto. Hmm. Uh, not Monster, which is, you know, one of his super duper heavy ones, although it's really good too, but, uh, or 21st kind century of hardcore. boys. But yeah, it takes a lot of effort to get into those, but Pluto is only six volumes, I think, so. Did they give a release date for it? How did you say No, they, it's Netflix. Mm-hmm. It's they Netflix. never, they never it's do. like, you know, on Monday, they're like, it's coming Friday! Right. Or, you know, they're like, coming soon, and it comes out six months from now. You, you don't, Really, no. Yeah. You only know once you go into the app and you go into your coming soon tab and it's like, it's coming next week. Yeah. And speaking of things coming to streaming, um, so Daniel Day Kim, the actor and now apparently producer, is behind an adaptation of, uh, the man of the comic Butterfly from Arashi Butterfly for Arashimel, Marguerite Bennett, Antonio Fuso, Stefano Simone, and Adam Gazowski, um, which came out from Boom years and years ago, is coming now to to Amazon. Um it's going to have a live action adaptation. Uh Daniel Day Kim is both producing it and one of the two main stars it is a um intergenerational spy thriller and he is presumably playing the um father role spy by family (laughs) (laughs) all right uh well i guess that just about wraps it up for this week right are yep. we are we good? Well, we, we you know it turned out to be a pretty busy news week after all. We didn't think it would be. So Meg, how 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 was your first time? How, welcome to the X Men, Kitty Pride. Uh, it's very exciting. I mean, I would like to reread the entire JNCRT list, but otherwise, <laughs> that was a it was like a real push for the mic moment. But um, it's it's fantastic. You know, Calvin, you know, has such a voice for radio. But I did my best, and it's really lovely to be talking to you. It's too. great to have you and uh, to bring a new perspective on here. And um, as always, there will be more to come. Why are you laughing so hard? So Meg is doing this this little hand gesture which i can't even i, I don't even know how to i was trying not to it. do the rat rabbit up hand gesture i started to like <laughs> no that's okay what does the rabbit up hand gesture mean anyway rabbit 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 up rabbit up i just didn't rabbit feel like up. i could oh not uh... not not rabbit up okay yeah, I that thought was she me was talking about rabbits